Well, good morning, good afternoon. Let's do that. Let's start over, Bill. Uh, good afternoon. It's Tuesday afternoon. I'm coming to you from our front bedroom in Tyler, Texas. So hopefully the optics are okay. It looks a little dark. I may try to lighten that up a little bit, but uh, that's probably going to be about as good as we're going to get. And uh, just want you to know that I'm very glad that you're here. Um, as I mentioned in the announcement about the class, we are having the flu at our house and have been sick for a few days, but hopefully we'll be on the mend pretty soon. I didn't get it quite as badly as uh, Joycey did, so we appreciate your prayers and concerns. Uh, she has the meds rolling, and that's good, and I am uh, on the up and up, and that's uh, good, too. So uh, well enough to come to you today in a little bit lower voice. If I uh, have a coughing spell here in a little bit, I'll just apologize ahead of time. And hopefully we'll be able to uh, get through today's lesson. I know there are a lot of folks that are uh, struggling with uh, seasonal illnesses this time of year. Certainly here in Texas, we have a lot of allergies going on. And uh, probably that's some of what I've had, but also... Uh, uh, like I said, uh, she was tested positive for flu, and it looks like it's probably bitten me as well. I got it first, and not very badly, and now she has it, uh, and has it in a pretty severe way. So thanks for thinking of us. Thanks for praying for us. I'm looking out the window. That's the source of my light, and uh, if you hear some accompanying noise, well, that is our yard being done, so welcome to Tuesday afternoon in the homestead in Tyler, Texas. Uh, where we are in our daily Bible reading is at a very exciting moment. Uh, we are, have been reading from the book of Acts, and boy, does it ever go fast from here. As you know from reading for a few days, if you're keeping up, uh, we are looking beginning Paul's second mission journey. Uh, as we are reading up to date, but I want us to get there because where we left it before Thanksgiving was uh, the end of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so now we come to the Acts of the Apostles and the way um, F. Lagarde Smith does it because it is in chronological order. He does it based on when things were written. And um, in Acts, uh, it's very exciting because once you get to the Apostle Paul, uh, he begins to write letters, and then we'll have some others show up as well. The book of Acts starts uh, 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus on that first, uh, what we traditionally call Easter Sunday. That term not in scripture, but we uh, recall the, the culture around us, and uh, that helps us to remember that 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 first Sunday, that first day of the week, they found the tomb empty, and then Jesus appeared for a while, and then uh, was raised, was ascended to the Father. Um, and 50 days after that Passover, 50 days after that resurrection, um, they are meeting on the day of Pentecost, and that is where uh, the church uh, begins. But really, the book of Acts begins before that. In Acts chapter 1, Luke introduces himself, Luke the author of the Gospel of Luke, uh, a, a, a partner, missionary partner with the Apostle Paul, as we'll be reading. And um, 
And so his gospel is probably something like what Paul would have written if he had written the gospel. And then Luke's volume two is the book of Acts, which takes us from that time of the ascension of Christ and then the day of Pentecost in the beginning in Acts chapter two, all the way through the time when Paul is under arrest in Rome. And that's where he leaves off in Acts 28. That's a period of about 30 years. Uh, I like to use approximations when I'm dating biblical things. And in scripture, Jesus, let's say he was uh, uh, born around zero, died around 30, uh, 30 to 33. Uh, and um, Paul, probably about five years younger than Jesus. And, um, and so around AD 30, let's just call it 30 or 30 CE, the common era, if you want to use that, uh, we'll just say 30. And then, uh, uh, as we go along, we read of some persecution in the church for a few years. Uh, Saul of Tarsus, uh, is baptized and converted around five or six years into the church. Uh, about 10 years later or so, um, we, uh, we read about the conversion of Cornelius, the first non-Jewish Gentile convert. And then about 20 years into the church, we, uh, we find the Jerusalem Conference. And uh, that's about the time, a couple of years earlier, perhaps, that Paul begins his mission journeys. And so, ultimately, we end up with Paul in uh, under house arrest, we might say, having some uh, uh, freedom, but not much. And people are able to come and go, and he's able to teach and preach. Uh, but as tradition would say, he is uh, released and is able to travel some more for a few years, and uh, ultimately to Spain, likely, and then uh, sometime arrested again back in Rome, and uh, beheaded because as a Roman citizen, he couldn't be crucified according to the law. And, and uh, under Emperor Nero, uh, he is killed for the faith sometime in the middle 60s, 65 to 66, somewhere in there. But that is after the history that we read about uh, in the book of Acts. And so as, as uh, we begin, we look at Acts chapter 1. Uh, the disciples there are talking with Jesus, and he gives them their marching orders in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when he says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and in Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. And that is really the outline of the book of Acts. Uh, starting in Jerusalem, they're in Jerusalem for a good bit of the period. Uh, that Acts covers up until chapter 8. And, um, uh, and then uh, they go to the surrounding area of the region of the Roman district of Judea and Samaria, just to the north. And then, of course, with Paul's mission journeys uh, to the ends of the known world, basically. Uh, so it is, uh, it is great to be with you again in Acts chapter 1. Jesus says, you are to be my witnesses. Throughout the book of Acts, that's exactly what we read. We read that they are his witnesses. And, um, and then Jesus ascends. And I love the way Acts 1 puts it. Uh, they're looking up at heaven, looking up at that amazing sight of Jesus ascending to the Father. 
and angels come and they say, what are you guys doing? Uh, why are you standing around here? Uh, that same Jesus that you just saw go into heaven will come back again. And so they leave and they go back to Jerusalem and they do what Jesus had commanded uh, at the end of Luke and also here in Acts chapter 1 and they wait. Uh, Peter, the apostle Peter, even though he had had that humiliating moment where he denied the Lord, uh, still Peter is there with them along with the others, around 150 or so, and they're staying in Jerusalem just as Jesus said. They're waiting for the Holy Spirit that they really didn't understand what was going to happen. But uh, Peter speaks up and says, look, Judas Iscariot betrayed the Lord. It was written in prophecy that let another take his place. And so we need to do that. And they find two men who had been with them from the beginning who would be able to be witnesses of the resurrection. So they had seen the Lord. And one of those is Matthias. And he is the one that is chosen uh, to be that 12th apostle in lieu uh, to replace Judas. And so Acts chapter 1 ends with that waiting and watching and praying. And then in Acts chapter 2, as we read, um, the Spirit comes and it's, uh, it's, uh, the Spirit descends from heaven, looks like uh, tongues that are cloven, that are uh, uh, d divided in some way or another. And they rest on the apostles and they begin to speak in other languages, traditionally other tongues. That just means languages. And it's not uh, guttural utterances, as some might say today, because the gathering there on the day of Pentecost, one of the Jewish feast days, again, 50 days after the ascension, after the resurrection, uh, still in the same city in Jerusalem, a lot of the Jews had stayed for the next big feast day, which was Pentecost. And they're there from all over the known world. And, and they are uh, hearing the gospel preached in their own language and they don't get it. And someone says, hey, they must be drunk. And Peter uh, is the focus for a while in Luke's uh, 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 history of the book of Acts. And Peter's sermon is recorded. And it's a typical sermon of what we're going to read throughout the book of Acts. Uh, he stands before them with the other apostles and he says, Jesus was a man that... Uh, God appointed and uh, he went around doing good is exactly what he'll tell Cornelius in Acts 10 and he says you killed him but God raised him from the dead and uh, now he has made him both Lord and Christ or Messiah Christ the Greek term for Messiah the Hebrew term which means the anointed one uh, and, and the people interrupt Peter, it seems, in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, and they say, what shall we do? And the answer comes back in Acts 2, verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And 3,000 are baptized that first day that the church exists. This is the first day that the church is now spoken of in the present, this uh, this uh, group that had been prophesied of, you think back all the way to the Garden of Eden, perhaps certainly to the time of Abraham, when God would bless all nations of the earth through a descendant of Abraham. And that descendant is not David, as Peter says. Uh, he is, his grave is with us. He died and stayed there. Uh, but Jesus is not. And all of these uh, early sermons uh, announced that, and 3,000 are baptized that day. 
added to their number and continues to grow with every single day at the end of Acts 2. In Acts 2, it talks about their fellowship, their devotion to the apostles' teaching and doctrine. Uh, remember, Jesus had said, unless you hold to my teaching, you are not one of my disciples. And so they do that through the inspiration of the Spirit and the leadership of the apostles and the church at Jerusalem uh, begins. And it's amazing to me always when I think about it, the, um, the credibility of the resurrection. Because remember, these men are in the same city where Jesus had been killed and buried and in a very public way. Uh, they're in the same city where um, uh, he had been raised from the dead. The tomb is right down the street, in a sense. It's right across town. And if the, uh, if the Jewish leaders and the Romans wanted to disprove the, the message of these apostles and others in the church, they could have just gone across town and gone to the tomb and opened it up and seen, see there, there's the body of Jesus, but they never did. They never produced his body. And in spite of that, they paid off uh, the soldiers to say that the apostles, these apostles who had run for their lives, um, uh, overpowered this extra Roman guard and uh, stole the body of Christ. And so it's ridiculous to think that that's what happened. And, and for the first several years, the church is still right there in that city. And the preaching continues. And it's just an amazing, credible story and the lives that are changed, you see the lives changed in the lives of these apostles especially. And how uh, we think of Jesus' family, two of his brothers, James and Jude, uh, who wrote New Testament books. James becomes one of the primary leaders of the church at Jerusalem. What changed for them? Because in the Gospels we read that they didn't believe in him. In fact, they made fun of him. And still, at the beginning of the church, um, they're there with the disciples. His brothers and sisters and his mother are there. And then James and Jude become leaders in the church, James especially, of the church at Jerusalem. Uh, so it's, uh, it's an amazing story, and the church is off and running. It begins with a bang in Acts chapter 2. But it, uh, persecution begins very quickly. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John, two of the apostles, heal a man lame from birth and they see him jumping around and praising God and they ask what happened and he tells them and so they call in Peter and John and they ask him what are you doing you and they say look if we're if we're being asked to account for why we did a good deed for a man who needed our help then let there be no doubt uh, this man stands before you whole because of the power and the name and the authority of Jesus Christ. They're very clear. Even though these are the same people that had crucified Jesus, uh, they go before that Jewish ruling council and they say, uh, this is because of Jesus, the one whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. And now salvation is found in no other name except the name of Jesus Christ. So they warn them and they tell them, look, you can't preach anymore in his name. And they say, hey, you decide for yourself whether you should obey God or people, we're going to obey God. We're not going to stop uh, preaching and teaching and telling others about what we have seen and heard. We're not going to stop being witnesses. And so they go back to the church. The church is meeting in Jerusalem, and they have that wonderful prayer. Uh, and they meet together at the end of Acts 4. And then 
Uh, in Acts chapter 5, they are preaching again and they are arrested again, this time all 12 of the apostles. They go before the ruling council and they decide that they need to beat them and flog them, a very severe penalty and punishment. And so for the first time, the church is actually facing physical persecution. And they, they, they take note, it says, that these men had been with Jesus. And we, we hear that statement and we're so encouraged by it. And we ask, would people say the same of us when they saw our lives? And I, I think one of the things that's working here is that the Jewish leaders are speaking out of frustration because they thought that they were done with this. They had Jesus killed. They stirred up the crowd. They crucified him. They buried him. And they thought they were done. But then came these stories of the resurrection and the appearances and they couldn't deny them. So they just tried to beat the people into submission. But the Christians would not go away. And so they decided that they rejoiced and that they were worthy of suffering in the name of Jesus. Would we feel the same today? There are people around the world who actually suffer the same kind of physical persecution and threat of harm and death if they name the name of Christ, and yet they are brave, and they do that to their death, would we do the same? I hope that we would, and I hope that we never have to prove that, but you never know. Um, at the end of Acts uh, chapter 5, we continue reading, and in Acts chapter 6 is the church, the first big church fight, <laughs> I call it. Um, there are some of the, uh, the, the Jews who are now Christians who are still in Jerusalem and they have widows there. Some of them are from a more Greek cultural perspective. They're all Jews still, but some of them are, are more Hellenistic, more Greek-centered. And uh, some of their widows were being neglected. And so their, their, their descendants, their, their uh, families went to the apostles and said, hey, you guys fix this. But the apostles, as good leaders as they were, and as good leaders need to do today, they said, look, this is, a, this is a real problem, and it needs to be handled, but we're not the ones to do it. You're the ones to do it. And so what they say is choose seven men that are spiritual, that are leaders, and put them in charge of this. And, and the apostles said, we will continue to devote ourselves to what God has called us to be, and that's in the ministry of the word and prayer. Uh, what a great, great statement that is in Acts chapter 6. A great reminder for leaders today uh, to not try to do everything, first of all, just like Moses learned, he didn't have to do it all, but also to focus on what God has called you to do and turn the church loose uh, to be able to do the things that God has gifted it to do. Ephesians 4, Paul tells us that leaders are to uh, equip others for the work of the Lord, that they can use their gifts. And that's a hard thing to do, but that's what we're called to do. Uh, so they do that, and they choose seven men. And two of the men, are, are we remember their names because they come up again. One is Philip that we'll read about in Acts 8, and the other is Stephen. And Stephen is a powerful, powerful preacher. And in Acts chapter 6 and 7, we read about Stephen, and we read about uh, his great sermon, and it sounds much like what Peter's sermon was. And the first early sermons, again, are all the same. They recount a history of the Jews. They use a lot of Old Testament because they're talking to Jews in Jerusalem. And then he says, this Jesus you crucified, and um, God raised him from the dead. You killed off all the prophets, and now you've killed the Messiah as well. And they've heard enough. 
and they take Stephen outside of the city and they try to they begin to stone him to death. And Stephen has a very similar experience uh, to what Jesus did, and he prays that they would be forgiven. And but as he looks up into heaven, he sees the heavens open and he sees the Lord standing at the right hand of the Father, not sitting. I don't know how significant that is, but I think it's a great statement for us that Jesus is caring and concerned enough about us when we're in the midst of trouble that he is standing uh, at the right hand of God, watching and taking care of us. It's a great, great image. And I hope you get that image when you're going through the tough times. Well, the ones who were stoning uh, the, uh, the, the preacher and what we might call deacon, although that term is not used, but that's what it sounds like. We'll read that later on um, in, the, in the New Testament. Uh, they lay their, their clothes at the feet of a young man by the name of Saul. This is Saul of Tarsus, uh, Saul of the tribe uh, of Benjamin, uh, named probably for King Saul. And uh, he is, becomes the point man for the Jewish persecution of the church. Uh, he is approving of what's happening to Stephen as he is being killed. And then he goes from there and takes, takes the leadership role and begins to go from house to house and city to city, dragging people away. He himself describes himself as a violent man and a persecutor of the church. And he's throwing men and women in jail and in prison and having them beaten and perhaps killed simply because they name that Jesus uh, is the Messiah and the Lord and the resurrected King of Kings. And he, he cannot stand for it. And, and so that takes us into chapter 8, and the church is scattered. All except the apostles leave from Jerusalem. So for the first time, we see that witness in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, going from Jerusalem to the surrounding areas, beginning with Samaria to the immediate north of the area of Judea. And, um, and it is one of those 12, Philip the evangelist, who is the man who takes the lead. And as he goes throughout this area of Samaria, he is preaching and teaching and converting uh, some of his Jewish brothers and sisters. And it's very clear in Acts chapter 8 that as uh, he is baptizing them, uh, that's a part of the response of faith. We read that throughout the book of Acts, being baptized into Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And after the uh, Samaritans hear the word, the disciples in Jerusalem hear about it, and they send two apostles, uh, John and Peter, there, and they lay their hands on the ones who had been baptized, and they begin also to speak in these uh, other languages to prophesy to do some of these miraculous, extraordinary gifts that the Spirit had enabled some to do. Uh, when we're baptized, we all receive the indwelling, the dwelling inside of us, in our souls, of the Holy Spirit of God. That comes at our conversion, at baptism, according to Acts 2.38. But this extraordinary gift is given when apostles, who only lived a certain length of time uh, throughout the first century, uh, lay their hands on a Christian and pray for them. We see Paul giving those gifts as an inspired apostle himself later uh, to uh, Timothy, for example, and to others. And here, uh, a man uh, who was interested in getting that power, he didn't want just to be able to, to have miraculous powers, he wanted to be able to give them, to pass them along. 
and he offered Peter and John money, and they told him in Acts chapter 8, uh, your heart is bad, and this is not your gift. This is a specific thing for others. And so he asked them to pray for, the, for him. It's an extraordinary story. And then uh, Philip is taken away, and he goes and joins. Uh, as he's going along, he uh, finds this man uh, who is an Ethiopian treasure, an officer, a Jew, but a, uh, an officer for the queen in Ethiopia, and he has come to Jerusalem to worship, perhaps for the Passover and other kinds of feasts. Again, we're probably five or so years down the line here in Acts chapter 8. And Philip uh, goes to him, and he's reading from Isaiah 53. And Philip begins right there, and he preaches to him about Jesus. And they're traveling along, and the Ethiopian is the man who says, Hey, here's some water. They pass a little pond or a bath area or something. And, and he says, Here's water. Why can't I be baptized? And Philip says, Well, if you believe, you can. And some trans, some... Uh, uh, manuscript evidence, not all of it, but some of it says he, he announces, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And they both go down into the water, Philip baptizes him, and then he's taken away. But this Ethiopian treasure goes on his way rejoicing. What a great conversion story that is. Uh, these conversion stories in the book of Acts all reflect that we believe in Jesus. We repent of our sins. That means to change your life. We confess that faith just like this Ethiopian treasure did so that Philip, in this case, would know that this was something that he, he was doing from the heart. And then we are baptized into Christ just as this man was. In Acts chapter 9, we read about another baptism, and it's one of the most famous ones. This Jewish leader, uh, the point man of the persecutors, uh, the Jewish leadership, Saul of Tarsus, is going from place to place persecuting the church He's got letters to the city of Damascus to bring Jews back to Jerusalem and put them in prison and worse if they name the name of Christ. But on the way, he's met by this great light and he hears a voice and it says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And um, I preached a sermon series a while back on all the times in scripture when someone's name is repeated like that from God. Uh, Moses, Moses at the burning bush. Abraham, Abraham, before he kills his son. Martha, Martha, Jesus lovingly exhorts this woman that was one of his best friends. And now Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Uh, in Acts 22 and in Acts 26, Paul tells the same story. And in one of those, he says, it's, Jesus says, it's hard for you to kick against the goats. Why I, I keep goading you to go the direction I want you to go, Saul. Why do you keep kicking against me? And Saul responds with this question, Who are you, Lord? He knows it's the Lord, but he has no idea who it is. He thought he was doing the will of God, just as Jesus had said and warned his disciples. People are going to harm you, even take your life, thinking they're serving God. And Saul says, Who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, I am Jesus of Nazareth whom you're persecuting. And I'm sure Saul's heart just sank and he realized what he had done and he said, what do I do, Lord? And the answer came back from Jesus, go into the city and it'll be told you. And he was blinded. Others saw the light, they couldn't hear the voice. 
and they guide him, they lead him into the city of Damascus, and God appears, Jesus appears to a Christian by the name of Ananias in Acts 9, and I love Ananias. <laughs> Jesus says, I want you to go find this man, Saul. He's on a, a street called Straight, and uh, I want you to tell him the things I have for him. And so Ananias says, wait, 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 hold on, Lord. I, I don't know if you've heard this or not, but this is a bad dude, and I'm not sure you want to send good old Ananias here to this guy. But Jesus tells him, no, he's going to suffer for me, and you'll be able to tell him that too. But he's my chosen instrument, and I want you to go. And so faithful Ananias does, even though he's risking his life. Because remember the last time we had seen this man, Saul, he was killing people, and he was putting them in jail, and he was doing all of this, wreaking all this havoc against the church. But Ananias goes, and he says, Saul, the Lord has chosen you. Uh, you're his chosen vessel to see the Lord Jesus and to hear words from his mouth and to preach his message uh, to others. And so at that point, uh, Saul had been praying and fasting. He was blinded for three days. Can't tell me he didn't repent. Can't tell me he didn't believe. He saw the Lord. He heard his voice. He repented because he'd been praying and fasting for three days. But what Ananias tells him is get up and be baptized and wash your sins away calling upon the name of the Lord. Yes, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, but what does that mean? Well, it means believing in him, and it means changing your life, and it means making that confession of faith, and it means being baptized into Christ. That's what Paul himself would say in Acts 22, verse 16, when he's telling this story himself. He says, this is what Ananias told me when he came to me. What are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on his name. And so Saul does that. And he immediately begins preaching there in Damascus. He has to escape from there because now he is public enemy number one to the Jews. Uh, he's the one they want to kill more than anybody. And so he gets out of town and ends up going to Jerusalem and seeing a few, but really he goes away to Arabia and he hears the message of God straight from the Lord himself, he would say later. And, um, and, and, and all the, the Christians know is that the man who is trying to destroy us is now preaching the name of Jesus. It's a great, great story. Another great conversion story is found in Acts 10. And we'll see how long we get today. We're already at 3.30 Central Time, but let's keep going for a little ways. Um, in Acts chapter 10, we're introduced to this Roman officer by the name of Cornelius. He's not a Jew. In fact, he's a soldier in the Roman army as an officer, a centurion, which means likely that he was commanding at least 100 troops. But he's a, a faithful man. He's a worshiper of God, and he's a generous man, and he's uh, one who has been very compassionate uh, towards others, including the Jews. And he has a vision, and he's called to send some men uh, to a city called Joppa where where um, uh, Peter is staying, the Apostle Peter, and he's told to send for him so that he can hear what Peter has for him. And about that same time, the Apostle Peter, uh, who had actually raised a woman from the dead, we read about in the book of Acts here, um, uh, this, this uh, wonderful uh, woman, Tabitha or Dorcas. And, uh, and so uh, Peter is there, and he has a vision of, of all these clean and unclean animals. And 
um, and and God telling him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And he says, no, 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 I've never eaten anything unclean at all in my life. I'm not going to start now. And the vision says, God says, don't call anything unclean that the Lord has called clean. And that happened not once, not twice, but three times. And, um, and Peter wakes up from the dream wondering what it is, and he hears the voice of God saying, look, there's some men downstairs. I want you to go with them. And even though these are men who are Gentiles, Peter except lets them come in and then goes with them because he knows this is from the Lord. When he gets there, they exchange stories, him and Cornelius, and his whole family is there. And so Peter tells him about Jesus, who went around doing good. I love that description of Jesus in Acts 10. And, uh, and, and then the Holy Spirit fell on Cornelius and the others, as it's described, the way that he fell on those at the very beginning. There was an extraordinary, this is the second time, and of only two times, that we read about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we might say. The Holy Spirit is given as an indwelling gift, as we said at our baptism. The Holy Spirit was given when apostles laid their hands on someone, and they were able to use these extraordinary gifts uh, for the sake of the kingdom. But there are only two times when that Spirit is outpoured in a very extraordinary way like this. One is on the day of Pentecost to the apostles in Acts 2, and the other is right here. Upon Cornelius and his family, they begin to speak in tongues and prophesy just like the apostles did. And Peter realizes, hey, can we, can, can, can we forbid these people to be baptized? They've received the Holy Spirit just like we have. And so he has Cornelius and his family baptized. And he stays there for a while. And then, bad news, he has to go to Jerusalem and tell them everything that happened. And when they question him, he tells them the story and they says, wow, God has really decided that it's time to open up his kingdom and his church to not just Jews, but to Gentiles as well. And that's a very extraordinary thing. They, the Jews and the non-Jews had been in conflict for 2,000 years since the time of Abraham. Circumcision was given during the life of Abraham. Uh, when his older son Ishmael uh, had been born and, and later Isaac, when he was born, was circumcised on the eighth day. And, and that's how long this had been going on. So it took an extraordinary sign, and that's what this was. And all the apostles and elders in Jerusalem agree, yeah, this is from God. This is from God. And so they, uh, they decide, well, okay, then God is accepting Gentiles. And there's a church in Antioch of Syria uh, northwest of uh, uh, the area of Judea on the northeastern uh, part of the Mediterranean Sea. And this church in Antioch of Syria decides to take this thing literally and they begin to actively evangelize non-Jews as well as Jews. And it's a very growing church. Uh, Barnabas hears about it. They send Barnabas from Jerusalem to go check it out. He looks at it and he says, look, I know just the person that needs to be here and a part of this. And so he sends for the Apostle Paul. And Paul and Barnabas are there with that church in Antioch of Syria, uh, baptizing and growing and amazing. And then in Acts chapter uh, 11, uh, there's a scripture, Acts chapter 11, verse 26, where it says the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch, right here at this place. It's an incredible, amazing story. Um, 
And then in chapter 12, the scene shifts back to Jerusalem, and King Herod is uh, wanting to appease the Jews, and he's probably feeling a little bit nervous about all this preaching about another king called Jesus. And so he arrests James, the brother of John. Remember, James and John were uh, uh, brothers. They were two of the apostles. And he has James arrested, and he kills him. And he, has, he decides that that went so well, he arrests Peter as well, and he's going to do the same. And the church is actively praying for Peter. I'm sure they did for James as well. But they were actively praying for Peter in Jerusalem, probably at the home of John Mark and his mother, the man who wrote the Gospel of Mark, and would be a traveling companion, as we'll see in just a moment, with Paul and Barnabas on their first mission journey for a while. Uh, at any rate, uh, they're praying, and Peter is miraculously released. And I love the story. He thinks it's a dream, a vision, and then he wakes up and he realizes, oh, wow, I, I really have been freed. And so he goes and he finds that house where the church is praying, and he knocks on the door, one of the outer doors, and a servant girl by the name of Rhoda goes and answers it, and doesn't answer it, but asks basically, who's there? And, and it's Peter. And she gets so excited, she runs in and she tells everybody that it's Peter, it's Peter, it's Peter. And, and they say, well, where is he? And he, she says, oh, oh, I left him outside. <laughs> and so she runs back and she lets him in. And the church has a wonderful time <clears throat> of rejoicing uh, because Peter had been released. Uh, James, the brother of uh, John, uh, the one who wrote the Gospel of John, but not the one who wrote the book of James. That's James, the half-brother of Jesus. Remember, we read in the Gospels that John, uh, Jesus' earthly parents, uh, Mary and Joseph, had other children in the natural way, and their names are even given in the Gospels. Two of them are Jude and James, and they become writers of New Testament books. And James, the brother of the Lord, is one of the ones who becomes a leader of the church at Jerusalem. Uh, Saul of Tarsus seeks him out when he goes to Jerusalem because he knows he's one of the leaders along with Peter and the apostles, and, uh, and we're going to read more about James in just a little bit. Uh, but in chapter 12, there's great rejoicing because the apostle Peter uh, is, um, is delivered in a miraculous way by the Lord. Well, in Acts chapter 13 and 14, we read about Paul's first mission journey. It's the home church, the sending church is that wonderful, amazing church at Antioch of Syria where the disciples were first called Christians, where they really had an active outreach to uh, not just Jews, but non-Jews as well, Gentiles. And so they, the Holy Spirit tells them, uh, I want you to set apart Paul and Barnabas for the work I have for them. And so the church prays and fasts for them, and they send them out on this mission journey along with Barnabas's relative, uh, probably a young nephew or cousin, uh, John Mark, who we know as Mark. And Mark for, goes with them for a while, but then gets a little homesick and a little cold feet, it seems, and goes back home to Jerusalem. But where they're going is throughout what we would call modern-day Turkey, and we read about it in Acts chapters 13 and 14. And in Acts chapter 13, they're in the synagogue in one of those stops, and we read a, uh, the first sermon recorded by the Apostle Paul, and it sounds just like the sermon that Peter preached in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, just like the sermon that Stephen pre preached in uh, Acts chapter 7 that got him killed as the first Christian martyr. And, um, 
but it's very Jewish. It's very, a lot of scripture, quotes from the Old Testament a lot. Why? Because it meant something to his audience. It meant something to those who were listening. And, uh, and so he describes Jesus as the fulfillment of all these prophecies. And I'm sure the people were amazed knowing how Saul had persecuted the church now uh, beginning to uh, announce about how much God had done through Jesus. Uh, and, and, uh, and so as they are going around, they are able to uh, uh, convert many, but they also uh, suffer great persecution. And it's during that time that John Mark uh, goes back. And that's chapters 13 and 14. And then that brings us uh, to chapter uh, Acts chapter 15. And in Acts chapter 15, the Jewish Christians are starting to get nervous. They're getting nervous because they're thinking, wait, what happened to the law of Moses? Where's that in all of this? Maybe we should start telling these Gentile converts that their males need to be circumcised and they need to not just be baptized, but to keep the law of Moses as well. And Paul and Barnabas, vehemently opposed that and said, absolutely not. That is not right. Uh, I think Peter at this time likely opposed it as well, but maybe not quite as vociferously. And so the elders and apostles in Jerusalem call on the church leaders to meet and Paul and Barnabas go and join them. And they meet together to talk about what, what's going on here. This is out of control, <laughs> out of our control, we would say. This is out of control. And and so they meet and they talk about it and they say, look, these, these Gentile Christians, the Jewish uh, Christians, some of them said they need to be following the law of Moses. And Paul and Barnabas get up and they talk about their mission journey and all the incredible things that God had done through the Holy Spirit through them to Jew and Gentile. And Peter talks about the vision that he had and what happened with him and Cornelius. And, and they, James, the half-brother of the Lord, one of the leaders of the church at Jerusalem stands up and takes the takes charge, and he says, "Look, here's what I think we should do. Uh, we can't ask them to keep the law of Moses. None of us were able to keep it either. So let's not do that. Instead, let's just ask these new Gentile converts to uh, take three or four of these things that are important to the Jews that they live around, and ask them to to follow that." And, and but not ask them to follow the law of Moses and not ask them to be circumcised. And uh, James's wisdom takes hold and they all agree and they write a letter uh, from James and the apostles and elders in Jerusalem and uh, they send it with Paul and Barnabas as they go back and they're going to all of these churches and they're telling them the good news and they're converting a lot of people and rejoicing in a great, great way. It's an amazing time. Um, Lagarde Smith, uh, in his chronological study, the Daily Bible, uh, sees the book of Galatians being written at this time. And that, that makes sense. I mean, it does make sense. Uh, because that would fall right after this time where uh, this was so important. And the book of Galatians is a book that, uh, that really calls into account those who are Jewish Christians and are trying to force the Gentile Christians to observe the laws of Moses. And so I think that we've probably covered enough ground. That's a lot of ground, isn't it? And so before we get to this division between Paul and Barnabas, and before we say more about the book of Galatians, which I love, 
and then um, getting into that second mission journey where Paul goes to all these incredible places this time, not just in modern day Turkey, but into the continent of Europe for the first time. And, uh, and, that, and of those great churches in what we call today Greece, uh, great churches of Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and Corinth and even Athens uh, in ancient Greece. And the gospel is spread, the churches begin, and it's an incredible, incredible story. I look forward to talking to you about that part of the story more on Thursday, but it's also during that time, as you know, looking ahead, uh, where we see Paul writing some more very significant New Testament books, including First and Second Corinthians and the book of Romans. And that's what we've got ahead of us for the next week or two. I pray that you're blessed. I appreciate your concern for Joyce and me. We'll be fine. We're just not fine yet. And I look forward to sharing with you uh, this coming Thursday of this incredible story of the first few decades of the Church of Jesus Christ. God bless.